You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. On a programming note this week, we're now going to be live every Thursday. So subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine to get a notification. Anna, it turns out that the three of us just have a lot less going on on Thursdays. We just called it on that finally after a year and change of, yeah. Of mostly recording on Thursdays. Right. (laughs) You know what? What if we moved it to the day we normally record on? Yeah, and then we're here. Yeah. Yeah, That sounds good. And uh, Jeff, we're also going to try to go live on Thursdays, have the audio version available by Friday, and then it'll go out in our newsletters on Monday. Perfect. I mean, it sounds... Genius. Yeah, yeah. Just a shade under 90 episodes, and we're finally putting the polish on it, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) By 100, who knows? It might be Wednesday. (laughs) All right. Before we get started, we have a word from our sponsor. Regardless of what you hear, supply chain disruptions, labor challenges, and low-cost foreign competition are not the biggest threats to U.S. manufacturers. Ransomware gangs, phishing schemes, and IP theft now top this list. That's why the Security Breach Podcast, hosted by Jeff Ranke, takes these hackers to task, examining how groups like Reveal and Exotic Lily are able to organize their attacks and how the industrial sector can protect themselves against tools like Cobalt Strike and Raspberry Robin. Stay up to date on all these vital cybersecurity topics by listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Security Breach Podcast. And we're back. And with another note about Security Breach, here's Jeff Ranke. Yeah, new um, podcast video that we've uh, started doing. Actually, we've been doing it for, for a little bit of time, but starting to gather a lot more speed as we kind of unveil or try to lift the veil a little bit on some of the cybersecurity challenges throughout the industrial sector. Uh, we've had some really cool guests on talking about some actually very frightening things, yeah. but um, um, definitely some good information, great guests. So hopefully everybody can check it out. Thus far, my favorite was the guy with the parrot. Johnny Upgrade? Johnny yes. Upgrade. Johnny he is, Upgrade. He is a character. When you're born into a name like that, what else are you going to do? It, it may or may not be his given name. You have to check out the episode. I'll have to say. <laughs> very good. Very good. All right. Our first story this week. Lafarge pleads guilty, will pay $778 million in penalties. The French cement company Lafarge pleaded guilty this week to paying millions of dollars to the Islamic State group to keep a plant operational in Syria. This happened at a time when the group was torturing kidnapped Westerners. The company will pay $778 million in penalties in what the Justice Department is calling the first case in which a company has pleaded guilty to conspiring to provide material support to a foreign terrorist organization. Lafarge and a now defunct Syrian subsidiary agreed to criminal fines of $90.78 million and a forfeiture of $687 million. Prosecutors say the company routed nearly $6 million to ISIS and and another militant group in 2013 and 2014. The payments were to gain a simple economic advantage. The company, <clears throat> the company had a $680 million plant in northern Syria 
and facing competition from cheaper imported cements, paid off ISIS to ensure the continued operations of the plant and to protect employees and the transport of raw materials into the facility. The Justice Department says the company used fake contracts and invoices to hide the partnerships. In a statement, Lafarge said it has, quote, accepted responsibility for the actions of the individual executives involved. This all happened before the company merged with Holson to form the world's largest cement maker. Jeff, other than the fact that Lafarge's statement said, don't worry, we fired everyone. What were your thoughts on this story from one of the largest cement makers in the world? So sort of taking two polar opposite perspectives on this first, maybe be a little bit more pragmatic. Mm -hmm. So in 2011, they invested what? Almost $700 million in this new facility in Syria. So you can appreciate the fact that even though Syria has been a hot spot or a volatile place for a very long time, probably my whole lifetime, still have a need for these products. So you can understand the fact that they have a facility there. They want to support that facility. How You can also see why Syria may have been an attractive location because, as we've also talked about, cement production is environmentally one of the worst processes out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's probably some lax regulations there that made that location attractive in that respect as well. However, mm-hmm. there's, there's a line, okay? We have talked about companies bribing officials, doing things to, to sort of get around different regulations, making things less known so that they didn't come up, up on the radar of other regulatory bodies. But when you talk about funneling t- money to terrorists, mm-hmm. that is a line. Right. That just seems like a line that you cannot justify crossing, especially in this time frame. 2014 is when ISIS was at its height. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is when they were doing the most damage. As you alluded to, a lot of horrible kidnappings and torture going on for Western Westerners that were in that area. And also, this is a French company. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget in 2015, November of 2015, the Paris attacks. Right. These were ISIS-funded attacks that killed over 130 people, wounded over 400 more. Mm-hmm. This is where that money went. Right. Now, for them to basically come out and say, hey, we cleaned house, it's all taken care of, that's easy to say seven years after the fact. Mm-hmm. It doesn't excuse in any way, shape, or form what was happened here. And you would hope there would be greater fallout. And that I'm glad this at least got on the radar and was talked about. But it needs to go beyond just the sector looking at this. This needs to be a bigger issue that's assessed by on a global, you know, where's the WTO in this? Where are some of the mm-hmm. other bigger organizations stepping in and saying, you, you gave money to one of the worst terrorist organizations in the world. Right. There has to be a bigger fine than this for a, you know. $500 billion company. Right. Um, Wholesome's tagline is build progress with us. Uh, we've seen this with other partnerships like 3M's acquisition of the uh, uh, the company with the bad um, hearing protection um, and where the stain just seems like it won't come out. Is this going to be something that <clears throat> plagues Lafarge and Wholesome? I mean, for the indefinite future? Unfortunately, I don't believe so. Okay. Um, you know, I uh, let me back up a little bit. I think that that you know people want to look at this. I know some people want to look at this probably as they were paying for their protection mm-hmm. in that region, um, and maybe to make sense of this. That's the way some people are trying to look at it, like almost like it was racketeering um, that they were this unwilling participant that had to pay these bad guys to keep their people safe or whatever. It definitely seems how they're, that's how they're trying to angle it. Right. I agree. Um, 
But, you know, to Jeff's point, like the money that was used by these organizations for the most, you know, gruesome and violent acts, um, uh, to me, like the solution of being between a rock and a hard place here is to do what every other Western company did in this case, which was to get the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been happening since day one of globalization. You set up shop in an unstable region. As Jeff said, this region's been unstable for a very long time. It sometimes comes back to bite you, and a lot of companies roll the dice on that. We saw that a lot with Russia recently. Many multinational companies lost a lot of money when they had to abruptly leave Russia, shutter their operations, they left assets there. It's unfortunately the nature of the beast when you're dealing with some of these regions. And what you don't get to do is quietly prop up terrorist organizations yeah. with your cash and, and you know— Obviously, their their competition had vacated, so they did gain a very a lot of economic leverage in that region. Um, so, to your question about will this impact them for the years to come, I regret to say, and I think we've talked about this before, but I don't think so. I mean, mm-hmm. that cushion of how many years ago this was is going to play a big role in that. First of all, secondly, their points about how I mean they they took responsibility without taking responsibility, you know, (laughs) when they said we are taking responsibility for what our executives did that Mm -hmm. are now fired. Well, that's not really, I mean, that didn't seem like a very straightforward statement to me, but then, um, you know, perhaps most importantly, this is sort of a B2B brand, right? They're not really at risk of any kind of consumer backlash, any kind of boycott. Um, you know, they're, paying this massive fine, which is appropriate and hopefully enough to deter them and maybe anyone observing this mess from doing something so brazenly morally devoid in the future. But in terms of will this cause people to take them out of their supply chain? I don't think so. And I just want to be specific. Uh, Jeff didn't say that they've been doing this for a very long time. He just said within his lifetime, you put those two together. (laughs) <laughs> that's a long time. That's fair. I'm not, I'm not, I'm yeah, I mean, just, you know, like a all. regular amount of time <laughs> is what I meant. Um, in 2014, one official said, it, one company official said that they needed to talk to a company lawyer about, quote, the consequences of this kind of deal. This was a day after ISIS released the video of the murder of American journalist James Foley. Um I think that uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco on Tuesday said it uh, the best when she said, uh, make no mistake, Lafarge and its leadership had every reason to know exactly with whom they were dealing and they didn't flinch. Um, In France, Lafarge and the eight executives are still facing charges over crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that as yes, as they should. But um, Jeff, to your point, like, I don't think this is. This is we're we're going to hear more about the story as it develops, um, and we'll see how it impacts both Lafarge and Wholesome. All right, our next most popular story: military counterfeit counterfeiter gets prison. A clothing and goods wholesaler from Brooklyn received forty months in prison for selling counterfeit U.S. military uniforms and gear from China. From 2013 to 2018, Raman Cohenbosch directed the development, manufacture, and importation of uniforms and equipment from the U.S. military and made some $20 million. Many of the products lacked safety features and did not meet certain specifications. The counterfeit products included 13,332 jackets not resistant to enemy night vision goggles 
and 18,597 non-flame-resistant hoods for airmen in the U.S. Air Force to wear and carry. U.S. law requires products sold in the U.S. Mili- to the U.S. military to be manufactured domestically. The law does allow other de- countries to make goods, but China's not on that list. Cohenbosch was also ordered to forfeit $20 million and make undetermined restitutions to companies his operation victimized, including one Rhode Island company that lost more than $639,000 in profits. The scheme included two co-conspirators, Bernard Klein and Terry Rowe, who provided samples of authentic military uniforms and gear to Chinese manufacturers, including tags and labels with trademarks of 15 companies that produce military products. They also faked certification letters that claimed the supplies were made in the USA. Now, Klein got 18 months and Rowe is still scheduled to be sentenced today. Anna, what were your thoughts on Cohen Bosch's 40 40 months? Uh, Two stories in a row that just made me absolutely indignant. Uh, When you look at what willful nature was behind this scheme and then the potential impact that could have taken place if these items had actually been worn by service members, thousands of counterfeit jackets not resistant to enemy night vision goggles, as Mm -hmm. you said, thousands of non-flame resistant hoods. These are people's lives on the line. Um, So forgive me if I say that 40 months and restitution of, of, you know, funds that he made on the scheme anyway, Mm -hmm. um, or 18 months for this other guy, uh, does not seem fitting to me. I mean, imagine selling a police officer a bulletproof vest that doesn't stop a bullet um, and doing so knowingly. I mean, Mm -hmm. these guys, they, they have evidence that they collaborated on the scheme. It was very deliberate. To me, that's a person with no conscience whatsoever. And if you threw the book at these guys, I don't think there would be a lot of tears shed for them. Um, You know, the press release uses very selective language uh, that the gear entered the military supply chain and was destined to be worn by service people. So I'm hoping that I'm right in taking that to mean that it was not used. Right. um, And that, that maybe there were no negative results there in terms of personal harm coming to any of those soldiers. But really just a disgusting case uh, full of willful greed. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's enough to just ask for those ill-gotten gains back um, and send someone to prison for three years. To me, that's not enough. Well, and Jeff, this conspiracy spanned five years. So I think it's really optimistic to believe that they didn't wind up, you know, in the hands of some soldiers throughout, you know, the, you know, throughout that time. hundred percent. Excuse me. <clears throat> You're looking at tens of thousands of soldiers that were potentially using this faulty equipment, these bad uniforms. Really, and I know this is going to sound dramatic, but in what way is this individual not guilty of attempted murder? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at somebody who is thought that their garment was going to be protecting them from night vision goggles or from extreme heat for what they're doing when refueling jets, absolutely. Especially because Anna said they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Now, part of this is part of a bigger issue we have throughout manufacturing with the counterfeiting, and I'll circle back to that. But I think also part of this is the Department of Defense's procurement processes. Right. Now, there's a lot Mm. of well-intended elements to their procurement process. They want to work, they want to have a diverse supplier base. They want to work with minorities. They want to work with women-owned businesses. They want to work with businesses of different sizes. Mm. That's all positive. But then when you put combine that with an onus placed on price, bottom line, all of those types of things, it leads to a lot of sloppy practices. Mm-hmm. A lot of really a supply chain. And we've heard a lot about this for years. Yeah. We've heard about electronics component suppliers who are basically set up in their apartment, sourcing stuff from one place, 
positioning themselves as manufacturers, selling it to a subcontractor mm-hmm. who then sells it to the government. There's there's all these things in place, again, because there's a lack of accountability at every step, because what they really want to do is look really good in their supply chain diversity. And as a result, they're making things worse for the end user, the soldiers. They're making it more difficult for those who actually are in charge of buying and supplying these products. And they're complicating the supply chain and leaving themselves open to situations like this. Mm-hmm. Now, the Army, the Department of Defense is not alone. When we look at counterfeit products, this is from 2018. It's a $1.7 trillion marketplace, globally mm-hmm. speaking. The other thing that's interesting there is 80% of those counterfeit products come from China. Mm. 60 80% of those products from counter, that were counterfeited in China are bought in the U.S., so while it is a huge issue, <laughs> we know who the players are. Yeah. The other thing that's really alarming is when we look at the military supply chain, in 2017, it was estimated that about 10% of all spare parts that are used in everything from rifles to even kitchen utensils, everything basically, if you look at the entire span of products sourced by the Army, about 10% of it was considered to be counterfeit at that time. Yeah. So it's a huge issue that continues to be reinforced, in my opinion, by the fact that it's just a sloppy process where we're trying to check way too many boxes and along the way we lose sight of what we really want a quality product well i think the supply chain diversity is so they don't want run into problems that we've seen in the past where one manufacturer goes down and all of a sudden the supply chain is dead so i get you know i i see it more as them wanting to protect themselves from supply chain disruptions rather than you know uh, put a better face forward in terms of the manufacturers they're choosing um the other thing is that they went, uh, the co-conspirators went through and just did a great job um, faking everything to the point that, I mean, it's not like they, I mean, this is a very extensive um, scheme that they orchestrated over the course of many years. And I mean, I get it that uh, it should have been caught along the way, but I mean, and maybe there needs to be more checks and checks and balances in place in order to catch things like this. But I mean, they really went out of their way to throw the government off in terms of the documentation, uh, the tag manufacturing, stuff like that. I think you're being very positive, very glass half full in trying to specify that the Army is worried or the Department of Defense is worried about being stuck with one supplier. Okay, I really don't think that's what it is. I think it's very politically driven in terms of how they try to be diverse. Um, It makes sense. And again, what they're trying to do has a lot of positive um, reinforcements, a lot of positive sentiment behind it. It's just not being executed well. Yeah. Again, in no offense, I've got a, a friend who's a major in the Army. He is in procurement. He is in supply chain management. That's not what he got a degree in, okay? That's not where he came from. That was a slot that he was given, and he's taught the Army way of purchasing and buying things Yeah, that needs to be fixed, okay? Yeah. Because we've got a lot of bad actors out there. And when it comes to some of the checks that need to be in place, I can appreciate these guys doing a great job of sabotaging these products, But if we're talking about equipment and garments that's supposed to be make you invisible to night vision, put on a pair of goggles and look at them. Oh, agreed. Oh, agreed. Not hard. No, yeah. All they did a good job in faking was how like uh, they put in these bureaucratic laters to try and um, uh, shield the system. Um, And all they did was fake that. Yeah. All it would have taken was somebody to put on night vision goggles to realize they weren't working. Uh, So the Rhode Island company also said that distributing counterfeit products damaged its relationships with military clients. And I mean, I know that sometimes uh, it's hard to feel bad for the some of the suppliers that they were working with and how they lost business. But I mean, it was like 13 different suppliers or something like that 
that they were distributing their counterfeit products and they took, a, you know, are taking huge losses as a result. Um, uh, not to quote two U.S. attorneys in one podcast, but uh, <laughs> here it goes. Zachary A. Uh, Kunha or Kuna said, American servicemen and women risk their lives every day in defense of the nation, but the risks they face should never come from the uniforms they wear and the equipment they carry. And again, just reading, you know, it's odd to read a press release and be like, no, you know what? That quote actually got it all. Kind of mm-hmm. nailed it. There. Yeah, I think we all agree on that. Um, Klein was fined $15,000, ordered to pay $400,000 in restitution, and he also paid $348,000 to resolve liability to the U.S. under the Federal False Claims Act. Now, the Cohenbosch, Klein, and Roe prosecutions are part of this like group of parallel criminal and civil enforcement actions by the U.S. Attorney's Office to bring down counterfeiters. So, Jeff, they're trying. Um, the civil sev- settlements with Klein and Cohenbosch, as well as this other company, the Dakota Outerwear Company in uh, North Dakota, have already recovered more than $2 million. So, uh, they're trying. They're, not doing well. They, yeah, they can try harder. I disagree with you, Jeff, that I don't believe that supplier diversity initiatives are the problem. I mean, there's plenty of companies that operate these effectively. There's tracking tools that can be employed. There's consultants that can be used. They're just not doing it. So Again, I don't have a problem with the approach. It's the way it's being executed, and it's been executed poorly for decades. Yeah. That's the issue. Wants to throw this friend under the bus. Does he listen to the podcast? No, I'm listening to somebody who's been there and had stuff sourced. I mean, I can tell a story like when they started rolling out the berets. Oh, yeah. When I was in 2001, there's this big push that would be made soldiers look more professional. They wanted to go away from the soft caps, which is like the baseball cap that we oh, always wore, yeah. to berets, black berets. Well, we got the black berets, and it's supposed to inspire this pride in unit and all of this great, you know, professional looking soldier unit. We looked underneath there, and about half of them were made in China. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't help reinforce positivity doesn't in terms you, of, huh? uh, yeah. And that's, again, that's where I go back to something's broken within. Yeah. Do you still have the beret? I do. Oh, that's cool. Wear, wear it. Week. Yeah, wear it. Jeff? I should have brought it in. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our next most popular story. Student-built electric vehicle breaks the acceleration record. A group of college students from Germany just clocked the fastest zero to 60 time. 20 members of the green team of the University of Stuttgart custom-built an electric vehicle that set the world record for acceleration last month. The carbon fiber vehicle weighs in at less than 320 pounds, but features a new battery pack and motors developed by the university, or at the university. The EV's maximum output of 180 kilowatts translates to 1,750 horsepower per ton and a peak acceleration of 2.5 grams, which is about the same as a rocket re-entering Earth's atmosphere. Guinness World Records confirmed that the custom vehicle went from a dead stop to 62 miles per hour, because they went to 100 kilometers per hour, at 1.461 seconds, 1.461 seconds at a local racetrack. Anna, I know that you are a fan of exhilaration, and so you probably wish that you were the driver in this uh, record-setting event. You guys know me well. I love to live on the edge. I like to take a lot of risks, and this is for me. So we call her Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, You know, what I do find exciting, though, is the developments that are happening with EV technology. Um, I think we're seeing a lot really ramp up 
And it's one of those things that's coming out of sort of this all in on electrics that we're seeing for automakers in the government. I know some people object to the idea of picking a winner in terms of which automotive tech is going to best transition us away from uh, fossil fuels. But now that there are a lot of eggs in this EV basket, I think the interest from a lot of other parties to get some skin in the game is going to be meaning more development and very quickly. Um, So when I read this, you know, this was exciting. It made me think of another development I read about just this week about um, uh, battery technology. This came out of a collaboration between Penn State and a battery company called EC Battery. Jointly, they developed a technology that maximizes the charging potential of EV batteries, um, the results of which provides the ability to bring a battery to 70% charge in just 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So not only does that address a lot of the pushback around charging where, mm-hmm. you know, I think people were talking about how EV juicing could kind of get to be on par with how quickly you could fill up your car with gas. Uh, secondly, the technology works on batteries of any size. So researchers believe that this gives automakers the ability to put smaller, lighter, less expensive batteries in their vehicles really cuts down on that range anxiety thing. Mm -hmm. And that would also drive down costs. So, um, you know, exciting stuff is happening right now all over the place. I think we're going to see a lot of development in the next couple of years, um, in terms of speed, in terms of battery technology, in terms of, you know, overall, effectiveness, safety, I mean, all that stuff uh, as as we go the next few years. The only, I think, downside to this is personally, and I don't know about this for everyone, but it makes me want to wait no. and see how much development occurs in the next two, three years in terms of range, you know, like. Yeah, no, it feels like we're right on the precipice of them really starting to blow out some of those records. Exactly. Um, Jeff, what were your thoughts on um, the achievement from the student team? All right, so I don't want to be this guy who craps on their idea. Yeah, do it. Be that guy. Fantastic. It's wonderful. Oh. You got engineering students. It's really encouraging to see what they're working on. The car itself, didn't it look kind of like a go-kart at a, like a kid's <laughs> track, though? I mean, it's <laughs> kind of like. I don't know. I thought here, it was. I was, I was like waiting to see this like really badass looking vehicle, and it was a bit underwhelming. To me, I had the opposite reaction where I'm like, oh, that actually looks like a cool looking car. I thought it looked pretty legit. Because I was th- I was expecting more of the uh, you know when we see these record setting vehicles they're essentially uh, fuselage taken off of a yeah. of an airplane with a point you know and a rocket in the back so I thought they did a pretty good job in terms of the aesthetics. Well, I think the aesthetics on the FC One X, which is a rally car that is actually supposed to be faster than this acceleration. It's an EV rally car. Now it weighs like twenty seven hundred pounds. It's a traditional enclosed vehicle, mm-hmm. but it reportedly can go zero to sixty in one point. Three seconds. Whoa. Which Watch out, is Stuttgart. Pretty insane. Yeah. What in watching videos of both this vehicle as well as the FCX one, it's what kind of throws me is when you're hearing them wind up, how quiet oh, they are. Yeah. And just how I mean, it is rapid acceleration like you can't even fathom. It, yeah. It's really hard to to process. And the one individual who's actually in the video of this one vehicle just like I, like he just blown away, could not believe how fast they were going, how quickly. And what it made me think about is, again, just having gone through the learning to drive process with three teenagers, mm. man, getting used to that acceleration, if it is that quick, and this is where we're trending, okay? Yeah. And I'm not saying every vehicle is going to be a high-performance supercar able to hit zero to 60 in one and a half seconds, but I think overall electric vehicles do have greater acceleration. Mm-hmm. They, they do get up to speed more quickly. You wonder if that could potentially create some some serious 
safety concerns, especially in inner cities where you could see more of these vehicles being used. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting to see how these acceleration and performance is going to have an impact on charging range. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Adam was kind of talking about, you know, what's coming up next and how it's going to go. For example, that rally car I was talking about, it can run at full speed for 13 minutes. <laughs> so, you know, um, so it'll be interesting how all, as we see more and more of these EV focused speed records, like we always have run this stuff, land speed record, uh, straight line distance, top speed, all that kind of stuff. This one being acceleration focused, hopefully the safety protocols mm-hmm. come in line with it as well. It reminds me of the only thing I can compare it to is uh, our roller coasters that use magnets to propel you out of the gate. Um, because that's the only way I can even unwrap my mind around that acceleration. Yeah. Um, but you're right because it's, they're really quiet. And if anything, they sound like a, uh, a, a wind up toy that's been wound up. Too yeah. Much. They do. Um, I liked how, uh, the students kept it simple. It was just mission world record. <laughs> Real simple. That's what we're going for. Uh, the team has had some setbacks, though. In July, the vehicle crashed into a stack of tires that served as a track barrier. Uh, the driver was unharmed, but the vehicle suffered enormous damage. And then after everything was repaired, the team suffered another tech- uh, more technical problems, and their second run had to be postponed again until this one that occurred in September. Uh, the other thing thought that I had is that when it comes to STEM, we want to push STEM learning and Uh, there are a lot of products and efforts out there that I look at and I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing there. That seems like it could attract somebody to, uh, an engineering or science profession. And, um, but it's not for me, you know, where, when you have a team, now this team, the green team was founded in 20, uh, 2009 and has regularly participated in this formula student international student design competition. And this is a cool competition where students design and build e-racing cars uh, that are evaluated based on like acceleration, endurance, stuff like that. These types of contests, I, I mean, admittedly for a university level, but that's the type of thing that really gets me excited. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. As much as I want to build a Lego Mindstorm, um, <laughs> it's just like, wait a second, how fast are we trying to go? Yeah, I could be into this. Um, just this green team has about 70 members and it's supported with an association of about 140 alumni. So it sounds like a cool team and you know, probably a lot of legit engineers about to enter the industry. You're tired of seeing Rube Goldberg machines? No, I will never, never tire of Rube Goldberg machines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have, we've taught uh, our oldest what a Rube Goldberg machine is. We actually have a Rube Goldberg children's book. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we like making simple machines that are over-engineered and they're amazing. Do you, do you have the game Mousetrap? No, I never, you know, I've never played the game Mousetrap that was a complete set. It was no, always broken. No one's played it. Yeah, nobody plays the game. It's no, never been no. played. It just, you just set the thing up yeah. and do it. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't know this because I, like, you would go, like, if the friend had Mousetrap, it's like, oh my goodness, we have to go and play it. And it was always just like, oh yeah, but we're missing those pieces. Hours. Resetting the Mousetrap. Hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. up. oh man. I just, I didn't know. Yeah, you got to know what you're getting into before you purchase a mousetrap for your house. <laughs> Very good. And it will be the most important piece that goes missing. Yeah. Oh. The I little mean, ball bearing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that always happens. Um, our next most popular story. SpaceX worker hospitalized in coma after rocket part test. In January, a SpaceX worker suffered <clears throat> a head injury during a rocket part test. According to OSHA, Integration technician Francisco Cabada was performing checks on a Raptor V2 engine when a highly pressurized valve blew off a plate and struck him in the head. 
the skull fracture and head trauma hospitalized Kabata, and he was in a coma for months. According to OSHA, the final step in the check venting was done for the first time using an automated program as opposed to the normal manual method. After Kabata initiated the automated venting, the fuel controller cover broke free from the controller module. SpaceX didn't release an analysis of the incident, but the company was fined more than $18,400 for serious and other violations. Anna, we always think about the astronauts that we lose along the way in the general space race, but I don't think a lot of attention is ever paid to kind of the people on the ground that are doing the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this is just the scary reality of new development. Mm -hmm. This is brand new technology. This particular process was being tested in a new way. Mm -hmm. Um, And sadly, I think that's where the most injuries occur in any process. It's that variable part when the line breaks down and someone steps in for diagnosis or when they're cleaning or maintenance is taking place or when there's new people, new equipment, new processes taking place, that's when uh, a risk to an employee is sort of heightened. Um, This case is particularly sad because the impacts of that injury were so catastrophic. Um, I do think it's important to point out that OSHA's report has characterized this incident as an accident. It doesn't define it as willful. That said, which, you know, would imply some sort of negligence or, you know, beyond Um, that said, the case has not yet been closed by the agency, which is indicating that there still may be some investigation going on. Other outlets are still investigating. Uh, Business Insider, who published a report on this, recently closed their piece with a call to action that read as follows. Are you a SpaceX worker who was present during the accident? Feel free to get in touch using a non-work email address. And they provided some contact information there. Perhaps they wouldn't feel the impetus to do that. If it were not for the fact that SpaceX's typical policy of doing this root cause analysis and re- releasing the results the next day had been done, um, it's possible that SpaceX is being mum on this because of the ongoing OSHA investigation. That would be understandable. Um, but I think that then that does unfortunately cause people to want to dig out more details. And in this case, I think SpaceX at least acknowledging this publicly would be beneficial because this happened in January. Mm-hmm. And from what it sounds like, the family is still trying to figure out what happened here, what is happening. Um, I know that you have to be careful in what you say if there's an investigation ongoing, or maybe there's a, you know, who knows, um, suit developing or something. I don't know, but, um, but, but something, say something. Yeah. No, um, I agree. It's on the company to kind of step forward and uh, do something about it. Uh, Jeff, these technicians are also called rocket surgeons, and many of them are working in 100-degree heat with 100% humidity. And I don't think that people think about sort of the harsh environments. You know, I think because sometimes when people hear engineer, they think a person working in an air-conditioned office. Wearing a lab coat, Mm -hmm. checking some boxes. No, obviously, and what you worry about here, and I don't have a problem with SpaceX not coming out initially and talking about this, Due to the nature of the project and a lot of the proprietary elements that may be involved, I understand that. But when we're talking about a company that's revolutionizing so many different things, satellite launching, communications, potentially space tourism, space exploration, and then they have somebody who gets hurt and they need a GoFundMe page, 
Mm-hmm. Something's missing here. I think SpaceX really dropped the ball. And what more than this individual needing that potentially to put his family at ease financially, it's what type of culture are you creating here? Mm-hmm. And I'm not even saying this is an Elon Musk thing because I think this goes beyond him into the deeper depth sort of of the organization. Yeah. Somebody goes down, especially developing this type of product, this rocket. This is the heavy rocket, right? That they're they're looking to do greater and bigger things with. <clears throat> you would think there would be more taking care of these guys, these folks internally. So that if you don't want it to get out, it doesn't. Or when it does, you can control the narrative. Yeah, one of our own fell. We got him. We're taking care of him. We're taking care of his family. We take care of our own. We're in this together. That whole type of thing. You know, we're going to talk about some other stuff in the next story that's got sort of a positive esprit de corps element to it. Mm-hmm. SpaceX really dropped the ball on this one. And it's it's just discouraging. Again, when you look at a company that's doing so many positive and just paradigm shattering things. Then one of their guys gets hurt so traumatically, and this is what they need for support. Well, and another part of it, uh, and a lot of this reporting was done by Semaphore and then uh, co-opted by uh, Business Insider, is that so when they were looking at that GoFundMe page, a lot of the people making donations were SpaceX employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I mean, it seems like the employees are rallying around another but the company is not stepping up and maybe that is because the investigation is still ongoing um california's department of industrial relations says the injuries affected kabata's head respiratory system and upper and lower extremities now he's out of the coma but remains in the hospital because he's unable to communicate or survive without medical assistance he has a wife and three young children and seems to be out of commission for the foreseeable future um this was just a devastating story. And I understand that, you know, with new technology, there are always risks to what's going on. But this is still something that you always want to try and prevent. And maybe because mm-hmm. it was a new procedure, uh, certain things could have been, uh, they could have been a little bit more careful with things. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, sometimes at this level of development, these types of things happen and it's just, it can be devastating. I just uh, want to circle back. One yeah. thing that was kind of interesting in looking at the OSHA report There was two citations issued. Mm -hmm. One was for $18,000. One was for $475. Yeah, for other. Isn't that kind of weird? Doesn't it feel like a little random? I'm glad. Hey, look, throw everything at them. I'm not not saying that, but how how do you go from 18 to 475? I don't know. I don't know. It's just sort of a strange dynamic in looking at that. Yeah, what a pointless line item. Yeah, I don't don't know. That's a useless fine. Yeah. well, hopefully once they uh, wrap up the investigation, more information will come out either via OSHA or hopefully from the company as well. All right. Our most popular story this week. Manufacturer unveils world's largest cast iron skillet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, that's one big old skillet. Lodge has been making cast iron products for more than 125 years. The company recently opened the Lodge Museum of Cast Iron in its hometown of South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. The museum has exhibits that show off what it's like to make cast iron in a foundry and highlight the company's history. But the main attraction is a cast iron skillet that's 18 feet from handle to handle. Made out of real cast iron, it weighs 14,360 pounds, something like seven tons. It can hold 650 eggs, reportedly, but the company stresses that the skillet is for looking, not for cooking. 
While the company's facility in Tennessee typically makes its products, the company partnered with an Alabama foundry to make this big old skillet a reality. Anna, it's just disappointing that this is for looking and not for cooking. Not for cooking. Nope. It's a real miss there. You would need, well, you would need a, a giant stove. And where would you find one? Call Sterno. Get them on the horn. World's biggest Sterno. Uh, when you say handle to handle, what does that mean? I think that because, you know, you normally have the long, you have yeah. the long handle and then you have like the little handle at the end because it's so heavy. Got it. Feet. Yeah. Okay. Um, also 650 eggs. That's got to be like a fried egg sort of metric. That's not a scrambled egg metric. It seems low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well. I could fit more eggs in there. Mm-hmm. Put mm-hmm. some other stuff in there. Make some French toast. We've got to break in after hours and just start filling this thing with eggs to get a real number. Yeah. It's, it's going to be tough. It's like elevated though. That's fine. We'll put yeah. it on the ground. You drop it? We'll just ease it down. <laughs> Seven tons. We'll bring it down. down. We'll build, bring a dolly. Build a fire. <laughs> ease it down. Yeah. Have a couple guys there. Yeah. Man, would that make an incredible sound. And it's going to be for cooking and not for looking. That's right. Time to start cooking, Lodge. <laughs> Yeah, super fun way for this very old brand to embrace new marketing. Um, uh, I thought it was just sort of a a fun, playful, endearing way to bring their brand to light. I did some research on the Lodge Museum of Cast Iron. Great. Because I thought you guys might want to know a little bit more about it. Before we go. I do, yes. Right. So um, the museum takes visitors through the history of cast iron cookware, how it's made, and what it's meant to food culture. They recommend that you allow at least two hours to tour the museum, shop at the factory store, and then I guess there's a restaurant that's not quite done yet, but mm. will be there soon. So you could get your eggs out yeah. of a regular skillet if that's of interest to you. I'm assuming this is like a, a country kitchen, but just with the world's largest cast iron skillet. Yeah, but all you you get just to just look at it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Weird way to spend your afternoon, I guess, but... Um, I did. Not if you're David Manty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, hey, how many times have people, I mean, two hours at this museum is not enough. Not Ma- enough. Maybe not. I don't know. Well, because no. so there's a museum in Minneapolis um, called the Mill City Museum. I don't know if anyone's ever been there. No. Uh, it's uh, constructed. Yeah. Well, it's constructed like kind of behind the facade and within the ruins of this old flour mill, which was the site of this very catastrophic dust explosion in the late 1800s. Um, but It was absolutely fascinating. Um, And I think people tend to think about manufacturing in one way because we talk about job creation all the time and manufacturing jobs, 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 jobs. But I don't think we always think about the story behind some of these everyday products, how they're made, um, understanding how they're designed, uh, really how they get to you, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of like that how it's made type storytelling. Yeah. Maybe that's where this narrative focus needs to be in order to help get the general public to identify more with um, the manufacturing industry rather than focus just on people getting a paycheck, talk about like some of the history of these products and how interesting some of it really is. And I apologize with the country kitchen. I meant Cracker Barrel. It sounds like they're trying to make a Cracker Barrel. Both both viable examples. Okay. Yeah. There's some wood floors probably in that gift shop. Yeah. They sell rocking chairs. Yeah. Some Um, lozenges, some whorehound candy. As restaurants (laughs) are known to do. Uh, (laughs) Jeff, your thoughts on the human compulsion to make things bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think there's a couple of cool examples of these. You know, we ran that one not too long ago about the statue with the Cheeto dust. Oh, yeah. You know, that one's kind of cool. So it's called Cheetle. Yeah. Yeah. Cheeto. There's also like the huge Jolly Green Giant. 
up oh, in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, down the interstate here, we've got the big um, Hormel chili silo oh, yeah. type stuff. So, I mean, when you look at some of these things, I think it's cool. I think it's a great idea in terms of promoting your product, obviously, getting it out there in a different light, different news mediums, pick it up and, and talk about you in a positive way. The other thing I think is this can create a real esprit de corps in mm-hmm. terms of people kind of rallying around it as sort of uh, an emblem or an iconic visual that represents what you're doing and what it the place in the community, all those things. I mean, this company's been around for what 120 some years, I believe, Lodge. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely got some roots. Yeah. The other thing is, right now, and we talk about this all the time in terms of how difficult it is to find employees, to find workers. I think this could be a really cool recruitment tool as mm-hmm. well. You know, in terms of getting the community out, and while they're there, taking a look at the huge skillet. Yeah. Hey, if you know, we also have some really good paying manufacturing jobs available here in the community too. So I think these things are great. And I, you know, wish more people could do it. I'm not saying everybody is in a financial place to do a seven ton (laughs) skillet, but I think these types of ideas are great because Anna, as Anna alluded to, puts manufacturing in a different light, focuses more on what we're doing and the role we play as opposed to some of those ridiculous stereotypes from the past that just portray it wrong, incorrectly. Maybe that has to be trivia or the poll question for um, maybe next week is to like, okay, what do you make? Uh, what do you make? And Or like, what is it that you make that would be the world's largest? So like, basically what Jeff is saying to everybody that is listening and watching is that- Jeff isn't saying anything. Whatever you make, you have to make the world's largest of it in order to be a recruiting tool. David, I appreciate where you're coming from, but we actually have a reader- that sent in a, the poll question for oh, next week. Well, that's fantastic. Just teasing a little bit, a little like foreshadowing it. there. I like Stay it. till the end, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> There's obviously some miscommunication because Jesse says, okay, we get it. You hate your jobs. This must be it. No, 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 no. She says, yeah. you hate jobs. I know she's what talking she's to saying. Anna. Yeah, she's oh, talking to me. Because yep, I yep. said, <laughs> all you hear about manufacturing <laughs> is jobs, jobs, jobs. <laughs> Please make a sound clip of that and play it. <laughs> it's like one of those things that's always got like the flailing arms. Yeah. It's Jobs, jobs, jobs. And uh, Seth says Mercer should make a giant loon. Mm. Good call, Seth. Mm, mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, Jesse, sorry for getting that just way wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw the, and I think there's an opportunity here because Lodge, obviously, they released the world's largest skillet. But next year or in two years, when it has faded, they use this to have the world's largest, you know, omelet or quiche made at some sort of company outing. It has to be done. It has to be done. And you don't have to wash it, right? A cast iron skillet? No, you don't have to. I mean, they say... Low uh, maintenance. According to Lodge, you can use a little bit of dish soap, but I use the uh, the dry rub with salt method. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know how you uh, re-season this thing. I mean, that's a lot of Crisco, you know, rubbing into this pan. Just like you've got 30 guys on it. Like, what'd you do? This entire week, I've been rubbing Crisco on the world's largest (laughs) seasoning this thing. Um, It made me look into what might have fallen as the previous largest pan. Yeah. Uh, And I think it might be close to a tie, actually, because the world's largest stainless steel skillet was made by London Bucket Company in September 1991 and donated to the World Chicken Festival in Kentucky. Which we just missed. It's still a thing, and it's every September, and we're going next time. We'll go to the world's largest skillet, and then, you know, on the way, check out the Chicken Festival. It's right up Anna's alley. Um, But, and this is London, Kentucky. This (laughs) skillet has served more than 120,000 fried chicken dinners since its inauguration in 1992. It's 10 feet, 6 inches in diameter, but... 
and eight inches deep, but it has an eight foot handle. So to me, that means it's 18 feet. It's got to be the same size. They're frying chicken in this thing? Yes. Yeah, That's so dangerous this, sounding. Oh, it's terribly dangerous. Um, when they talk about the skillet, I was thinking like, no, do not eggs, like do bacon. But man, that'd be the biggest grease fire in the history oh, of the world. That would be fantastic. I mean, it'd smell amazing. Oh, but. my goodness. Uh, it only weighs 700 pounds total, stainless steel. It's made from 11-gauge hot-rolled stainless steel. It requires 300 gallons of cooking oil no. to your fire hazard. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to fall into that. And it can cook 600 quarters. What? No, because it's full of chicken. 600 quarters of chicken at one time. Uh, they're it, just like, they're like, okay, well, we'll be making those chickens in the kitchen and then we'll just bring them out to you. But we are using the big pan for <laughs> sure. So don't question that. It takes more natural gas than an average family would use in a year. And they use it to cook 7,000 pieces of chicken. Ugh. This just sounds amazing. And we must go and see Lodge. Here's the opportunity. You got to start cooking something in there. All right. Well. Before we get into in case you missed it or discuss other large items, uh, we have another word from our sponsor. Regardless of what you hear, supply chain disruptions, labor challenges, and low-cost foreign competition are not the biggest threats to U.S. manufacturers. Ransomware gangs, phishing schemes, and IP theft now top this list. That's why the Security Breach Podcast, hosted by Jeff Ranke, takes these hackers to task, examining how groups like Reveal and Exotic Lily are able to organize their attacks and how the industrial sector can protect themselves against tools like Cobalt Strike and Raspberry Robin. Stay up to date on all these vital cybersecurity topics by listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Security Breach Podcast. And we're back. And again, with a little bit more about our sponsor this week, Security Breach, here's Jeff. I don't have a lot of new things to say about it, David. <laughs> Just check it out. We actually have some really cool guests, some, some folks. Um, we actually talked to, uh, some in some upcoming episodes, we talked to the founder of the Darknet Diaries. Um, he's got some really nice. crazy stories to tell. We also talked about some folks from Israel who are fighting some um, the Ghost Sec group, which is a group of hacktivists that are sort of um, up for debate in terms of what their tactics are really about, but they're really going after industrial in, industrial control systems now, which is a new tactic that is pretty scary for anybody in the industrial sector. So some pretty cool stuff. Some of these topics are so proprietary. How do you find these guests? Um, a lot of them come to us. Okay, they're, they're looking to contribute and talk about what they're doing. And a lot of it is they start out talking about one thing, but as you gain a little bit more of a foothold into what's going on. If you probe a little bit deeper, they're offering up some uh, some really interesting stories, which is what our sector needs. Mm -hmm. Because when somebody does get attacked, they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. You understand why, but getting more information out there helps us collectively. So that's really what, uh, what the show's about. Oh, very good. Uh, check it out. There should be a link in the comments section, and there'll be a link below in the description for the podcast. Now on to, in case you missed it, the stories that maybe weren't as popular this week, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry forward or things that live in the ocean. Anna, what's your in case you missed it this week? Oh, uh, we're going to talk about whales, folks. <laughs> uh, I picked this story. Uh, the headline was smart buoys to protect whales from ship collisions, uh, which um, piqued my interest right away. Uh According to Reuters, the Blue Boat Initiative has begun installing a network of smart buoys along the western coast of South America. The buoys use software that listens to the sounds of the ocean and with some help from artificial intelligence picks out animal noises. Those noises are then used to provide ships with the animal type and exact location. Blue Boat says that its connected buoys rely on a system of hydrophones, ocean 
oceanographic sensors and transmitters to alert ships to whale activity, which is heavy to the south of Chile, which that area tends to be popular in feeding and breeding for whales. So by focusing on that region specifically, the initiative can help reduce the number of whales that are killed each year, which um, the World Sustainability Organization estimates as 18,000 to 25,000 whales every year that are killed in ship collisions. That's crazy. Which is something I never had heard in my life. Um, That was just like an astonishing number to hear. Uh, I picked this story because, um, you know, obviously the the sustainability um, aspect of it and, and, you know, keeping those animals safe. But also I thought it was interesting how uh, they use AI for this. Um, I've been enjoying some of the applications that have been coming out of this emerging field lately. And I think AI kind of gets a bad rap sometimes when the most common use cases, as we see now, are things like chatbots and voice right. assistants and shopping assistants, stuff that like there's so many people that don't care about any of those things, mm-hmm. myself included. Um, not to mention the narrative that kind of clouds over everything about AI. Um, yeah, the overlord taking over the world. Yeah, yeah sentient robots, which mm-hmm. I know is kind of like your thing, right? Into it, I'm um, into it. I'm into it. <laughs> but, but I, you know, this sort of spoke to the fact that there are lots of really cool and impactful applications like this one, like ones in healthcare, like those that are helping people with special needs and disabilities, those that can offer, um, you know, immediate language translation. I mean, it's just like a lot of really cool stuff that's brewing. Um, and I thought the story kind of encouraged people to get excited about the technology's possibilities and maybe, um, you know, think about some of the, the positive outcomes for AI. Although I do still think it needs a regulatory framework. I'm just going <laughs> to stick that in on the end. But I just uh, I find it encouraging how much technology we've seen over the last couple of years go into prote- uh, protecting our oceans ecosystem. Yeah. And uh, this was one that when the story first came across our desk, I was like. I don't know. You know, I get it. You got to protect whales. But uh, when you look into how the technology actually works, Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I was most impressed with. Jeff, your thoughts on their efforts to rescue these, as Ben Munson said, extremely majestic animals. I think it's good, David. (laughs) You like like it? Real hot take. Yeah. Jeff is pro whale. (laughs) Actually, I've have seen them gone whale watching. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, even a greater appreciation maybe than uh, than seeing them. But, yeah, obviously just on a number of fronts. I think you guys have kind of covered it. But also just the fact that there's going to be more ships out there. It's going to continue to increase in terms of the number of container ships that are going out there. We have supply chain issues. We have problems already. If we can keep the whales safe and not um, damage some boats along mm-hmm. the way, I think it's a, it's a win-win situation. Well, in talking about, talk, I mean, we talk about the development with autonomous ships. Um, maybe yeah. this is a technology that will automatically talk to them and let them know how to evade it. Um, that could kind of, it's kind of like, um, what do they call it on the roads where it's going to be, it's uh, vehicle, like V2V communication mm-hmm. where all the, that's uh, ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, maybe it would be like ocean to ocean ecosystem. The buoys are talking to the whales, talking to the ships. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be gonna be a good time. Struggle on that one, <laughs> Jeff. We got it, David. It's gonna be a good your, time. Your, in case you missed it this week. Sure. So we uh, just kind of following up on the Amazon union situation. Amazon workers rejected um, a bid in upstate New York. So basically, at a, a warehouse that was just outside Albany, they voted this week and they rejected a union bid. 
Uh, this is the second defeat to a labor group that's been attempting to, according to the AP, drag the company to the negotiating table since its historic win earlier this year. So we know about the Long Island Amazon facility. We were talking about that one actually last week about some of the stuff going on there. And the strength that or the sort of the combative attitude that Amazon has had towards unions. Earlier this year, they um, in Birmingham, uh, the union was voted down. We see it again here. Amazon's the second largest employer in the U.S. So when we look at union momentum potentially taking off or gaining a greater hold, it's running into some stumbling blocks with Amazon anyway. Mm -hmm. You wonder where that could go when we look at a lot of those automotive facilities that are opening in the southeast and starting to even get into the Midwest and southwest part of the country that are non-union right now. And that's sort of been a um, selling point in getting them there. Um, So it's, it's interesting to see where labor is going here how what is the does this feed into sort of the overall strength of unions if they can't get into these bigger amazon facilities what does that say going forward for a lot of other types of um Mm -hmm. uh, workplaces that are looking to unionize so and it was voted down strongly it was like a one-thirds two-thirds against um dynamic so pretty loud and clear in terms of how these workers felt in not joining the union yeah i always feel like it definitely changes because uh it seems like the industry likes to look at these types of stories and there are these types of stories. There are multiple a week and they're just like, see, unions are dying. See, unions are more powerful than they've ever been. Nope. Unions are on the downswing. Did you see what happened at Amazon? And Anna, isn't it true that it's just, I feel like it is so uh, business to business. Like it's so situational. It, uh, the union leadership matters so much for each individual um, uh, rally isn't that a big part of whether or not these unionization efforts succeed? Well, I think so. And it's so hard to know facility to facility what kind of union quashing measures are exactly. taking place there and if people feel pressured to vote a certain way. Um, <clears throat> that's not to say that everyone, I mean, that that this is somehow dubious or spurious. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But you do find that stuff come out kind of later that people say like, oh, there was flyers hanging up or we had to attend these mandatory seminars where they told us what a bad idea it was or whatever. Um, that stuff still happens too. So it is really hard to know what the actual sentiment is. I agree with you because like um, there was a story that came out this week about an Apple store voting to unionize. Right. And, you know, that was like third paragraph in like this comes on a wave of momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does seem like every time it, it, it's a, it's a wave and then <laughs> something yeah. like this happens. And then, you know, it, it's hard to apply that to the entire industry of workers. But well, another thing that they tacked onto the Apple one was, uh, they tacked on millennials want unions. Millennials and the younger generation wants unions. And then, I mean, who do you think is working at this Amazon warehouse? I think it's a mix. I yeah. mean, I do think it's a mix um, demographically. And I think all of these stories in some way actually lend a lot of credence to what the union is trying to do. It keeps it in the headlines, mm-hmm. keeps it front of mind, and it also poses that continual threat to somebody like Amazon. Mm-hmm. Now, you can bet Walmart, who's actually the number one employer in the U.S., is watching this very closely as well. Yeah. The things that they want to do in expanding their e-commerce offerings, um, you know, we saw some things this week come out about the use of autonomous robots in their warehouses and some other places. So all of this is going to bleed together a little bit. And I think the presence or the threat of a union is pushing these companies, hopefully, to look more closely just so they can avoid this conversation. Right. Look more closely at how they're treating their people, how they're mm-hmm. investing, but also how they're going to look at some of these other autonomous and automation technologies too. All right. My, in case you missed it this week, I kind of changed at the last minute because I saw the story come out and I had to cover the world's 
largest cultivated meat plant. Mm. Not exactly a cast iron skillet, but I found it of interest. (laughs) Mosa Meat is a meat cultivator. The company grows beef directly from animal cells and unveiled the first cultivated hamburger in 2013. This week, the company announced a new industrial production development center that is being developed close to Mosa Meat's existing pilot facility in the Netherlands. Following the success of the pilot, Mosa Meat is ready for the next phase of expansion with industrial production lines and a larger scale production. The new plants will be 30,000 square feet, so not so big, but bringing Mosa Meat's total footprint to more than 77,000 square feet. According to the company, that makes it the largest cultivated meat campus in the world. So a lot of space to grow there. A lot of space to grow there. It's like uh, the world's largest cultivated meat campus is the size of a small cooler, unlike a regular <laughs> meat processing plant. Right. Global meat consumption is projected to grow more than 40% by 2030, and most of meat is part of a growing global movement to transform the way meat is produced. I chose this because there are a lot of interesting things here when it comes to cultivated meats. What is meats? We see a lot of, uh, we saw the market for plant-based meat kind of blow up last year, uh, get really popular last year, and then it's kind of cooled this year with inflation. Uh, We've seen Beyond Meat go through a host of troubling situations, including an executive biting another person. Um, But this in particular, I wanted to kind of ask you guys what you thought about lab-grown meat. Um, Anna, your choices regarding uh, being a vegetarian, would those change uh, in terms of consuming a product like this if it was lab-grown? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that I would object to it morally, um, you know, for me, it's a lot about the the suffering component um, and also the sustainability side of, of meat production. Mm-hmm. Um, this solves a lot of those problems. That said, um, I don't know that I would like seek this out. <laughs> okay. um, I, I also think, I, you know, a lot of vegetarians, I think, would agree with me. When you are, ser- I don't mind fake meat, meat substitutes, all that stuff. But when you're served something that tastes so much like the real thing to you, it's sort of off-putting and and I feel like it would be very easy to um, get the the animal kind and not this kind. I, I don't know. Like if yeah, this were served at, it, yeah. yeah, like if this were served at a restaurant, how do you know that you're getting the cultivated meat and not the factory farm meat? You would not know. Traceability. It's gonna have the well, QR yeah, code. But, yeah, they're not giving you the QR code. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if I would um, participate, but I do think that um, for the aforementioned reasons um, relating to I mean, forty percent by twenty thirty from it's, now? I mean, that seems incredibly high. Yeah, that's, I mean, uh, that seemed really high to me. But, you know, they but, threw it out there, so trust it. But, yes, there's a lot of people on Earth, so the population, you know. Um, so it is the, something needs to be done, I think, to address this because we can't continue with the process that we have um, and cater to the, the needs of the Earth for much longer with that. So No, I, I kind of agree. And, Jeff, uh, I see a story like this, and I think, man, we just really need to fix things in beef processing and uh, the way that we're currently approaching the beef industry now, because I'm not certain that I want cultivated hamburger so much as. Have you had any of this like plant-based? Uh, well, plant-based, yes, but I've never had anything or that's been lab grown. No, no, I haven't. So this is all just me like throwing shade on something I've never tried. But yeah. uh, I mean, I don't know that you can or have an opportunity to try that yet. Right. So for me, this would come down to a couple of more practical elements. Yeah. Taste. Yeah. Cost. You know, the one thing that I would see is regardless of how you feel about eating meat, the body needs protein. Yeah. And if we get this to a point where we can provide a 
lower cost source of protein to areas of the world where they are not able to raise livestock, yeah. I think that is a positive development. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it depends on where it goes. The consumer is ultimately going to guide how far this goes. Okay, yeah. There are some folks who do have definite moral opinions and feelings about this and they, they feel more comfortable eating this type of product. Go for it. You know, yeah. if the market holds it, I'm all, I have no issues. Yeah. yeah. That's another thing. That's another point for me is I don't see how lab grown meat or cultivated meat comes under traditionally processed or traditionally grown meat from a cost perspective, from a cost perspective. Yeah, right? exactly. And as long as it doesn't, then this is not going to get very far with meat eaters in my opinion. It's gotta, but. there's gotta be a taste similarity because mm-hmm. like when all the stuff that I've had, it tastes good. Mm hmm. Does not taste the same. This is different, so, though. Yeah. Uh, this is supposed to be like grown from actual cells of an ant. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, yes, so, so yeah. it's supposed to be the same. Right. I don't know if that's a reality, but that's how it's positioned. I guess I would rather see it. I'm interested to try it because I'm more interested in something that's grown from animal cells than when they make a plant-based burger that bleeds. Mm-hmm. You know, pass. Ble- bleeds with like. Beet juice. Yeah, beet yeah. juice. Yeah. Uh, Jesse, thanks again for watching us live. She says that, oh, perhaps for the podcast, we could make the largest rooster or the largest soapbox. Oh, nice, nice idea. Nice. We should make the largest rooster. Oh, and Sev gave us an update. He says it already exists in Mercer, a giant loon. My oh, goodness. Sweet. Um, Jesse then says she wants to grow a hot dog tree. You keep working on that, Jesse. Yeah, and you that's will realize a pl- I like where this is day. going. That's plant-based yeah. like meat if I've, ever, if I've ever heard of. <laughs> you keep planting hot dogs, and one day it'll come true. Let's move on to our final thoughts. Please, if you ever visit, don't plant hot dogs in my backyard. I don't know if I could deal with that smell. Hot dog tree. Um, Anna, what are your final thoughts this week? All right, so I, um, I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys earlier this week, but... Um, uh, Chris, my husband, and I um, started watching Game of Thrones finally. Oh, man. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a <laughs> show. Uh, anyway, um, so I just want to um, give a shout out to all my fellow parents of young children out there that are literally like seven years behind on TV. No spoilers, but please, when I'm done with it, I want to talk to everyone about it. So, yeah, like, like absolutely. study yeah. back up on the the characters and things so I can uh I appreciate you guys including me in that even though I'm way 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 behind. What's crazy is we're yeah, right We are Oh up uh, every week about what happened. Yeah, yeah. You guys Did you guys hear? Yeah. Last night uh but what David hasn't seen it. Yet. I haven't seen No, so oh, we Okay, actually, then I won't. Yeah. No, we just started rewatched uh season 1. Um we just finished season one and we're going on to season two and it's, it's the you exact are? same thing. Yeah. We're right with each I other, know, buddy. I know. I we like just, it. Okay. Don't tell me that I got to watch the last episode of season one tonight. Oh, oh man. And tomorrow we'll talk. Okay. Yeah. I just couldn't believe what just happened. Okay. So we'll talk tomorrow. No, it is. I mean that, uh, but that show has proven to me that no matter what we're watching, my significant other will fall asleep <laughs> either three quarters of a way to one and a half episodes in. We're just like, you want to watch one more? I mean, I do. Yeah. But if you're not feeling it, it's okay to turn it off. Yeah. Two things about Game of Thrones. Number one, I have never been, like once an episode finished and the screen went black, I've never been watching an episode all the way through to that multiple times. Like with Game of Thrones, it would end. The credits would roll. I would still be staring at the screen because I could not believe <laughs> like, what? what just happened. And also, my wife would tend to not watch. She doesn't watch that with me. But she would walk in at the worst possible moment every time. Mm. 
And it would always be the, what are you watching? Yeah. That's one that you have to justify. That's one that you're definitely aware that your TV faces the road and your blinds are sh- or your curtains are sheer, <laughs> you know. And th- there were actually watching. There was there? an actual moment where we were watching it, and I kind of went out the front door and just looked in. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, still, still everything. What did the mailman just see? You can see everything, <laughs> everything. Uh, and Carrie, who is watching us live, says some of us have to go to sleep at a reasonable hour, responsible hour. I mean, but is that eight? (laughs) (laughs) It's 8.15. My final thought is first and foremost, I'm sorry, Carrie, and I love you. Uh, (laughs) uh, But uh, we're actually going out to, uh, we're going to the theater tonight, and I'm really looking forward to it. We don't get out to it enough. It's something that I love to do, and um, I love to get out and support the arts. Um, I'm a sucker for a musical and it's nice to get a quality babysitter once again, Jeff. You betcha. And, um, no, just have a nice it's night. It's not me, wife. by the way. <laughs> yeah. I am not paying paid to babysit David's children. <laughs> he does it for free. No. <laughs> um, but no, you know, uh, just a reminder to kind of take a time, take moments for yourself and, uh, get a chance to decompress. And, you know, if you get a chance to support the arts as well, that's always appreciated. Jeff. What is your final thought this week? So is Anna going to stop putting a rooster on everything and start putting a dragon on everything? That could be. Maybe. 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 Oh, my goodness. If you just get so hardcore into it and, like, you start coming in with, like, braided hair. I'll have, like, (laughs) chain mail on and stuff for at work. Yeah. Just, like, it is April and she's still wearing the chain mail. (laughs) (laughs) She wants to be introduced as the breaker of chains. Oh, my goodness. Um. Final, oh yeah, got wrapped up in Game of Thrones. Yeah, of, I'm, I'm my, excited my, to my watch it now. Yeah. Here. Uh, closing thoughts. So you guys got back on the road with IMTS a bit ago. I'm actually going to start making my trade show reemergence. I guess. Yeah. Um, next week I'll be at the Emerson Exchange and then also at Pack Expo. Nice. So if you see me walking around, I'll have some um, Today Manufacturing podcast T-shirts. I'd be loving to hand those out. Do you so, carry your soapbox around with you when you go to trade shows that's and how, just like set it down? That's how he stores the shirts. Okay. Yeah, I've got a collapsible one. Just kind of pull it out. Yep. Throw down <laughs> works out well people gather around what are you going to emerson and oh pack expo and pack expo where so, are those uh emerson's down in dallas and pack expo is in chicago oh man so, all right getting those mylands going again yeah so, right. should be good looking forward to it um podcast poll from last week we asked which of the following would be the most difficult mistake to justify and just want to get to some of the responses. We had some really good responses here uh first of all i want to go from frank green he um he his pick was having a product defect that led to a $100 million class action suit. He thought that'd be the dip most difficult to justify. That was in reference to that GM story that mm-hmm. we had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His comment was, the recent revelations in the automotive industry regarding this very issue shows a disregard for both the business and the shareholders. I think, Anna, you said something very similar last week. We also had some good comments from Bruce Beyer. His comment was firing the whistleblowers and being forced to pay eight hundred grand in lost wages. That was in response to the Exxon story. Yeah, his thoughts were that a whistleblower should should be able to act without fear, and that's about all that might keep management in big in a big outfit like that from rolling over the public. Management knows if this continues that for the most part they can be untouchable. So that was his thoughts. Good point. The overwhelming response, though, in terms of which one of these is the most difficult mistake to justify was paying over $240 million to support production of a product that never existed. <laughs> Obviously, talking about the ranch out there and uh, the relationship with Tyson. Mm. 
Um, some good comments here from Chris. He said, when evaluating a new vendor, one of my primary questions is always, is their sample available? Mm. Even if we have to pay for the sample, we want to know what we are buying. How do you pay $240 million and not know that the product is actually there? That we all said, but That's his next right. comment is pretty original. I did appreciate. He said, I would have at least asked for a hamburger and then <laughs> offered to share it with Anna. Oh. oh, so Chris is looking out for you. Thanks, Chris. That's nice. We uh, we also had a nice comment on that one from Larry. Uh, he's a regular commenter and listener. He says, "I have to think about. I have to think based on the magnitude alone that the two hundred forty million dollars for a product that never existed would be a hard pill to swallow for someone. I know that there are some people with a lot of money to throw around, but someone has to at least know what the product exists. I come from cow country, and most people I know like to see and count their cows occasionally." not take someone else's word for it. So thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And to everybody else who commented, we'll get those shirts out to you. The poll question for next week, I thought was actually really good. It comes from a reader, comes from Paul Coddington. And he's, his question is, does the need to answer to investors of a publicly traded company make it easier or harder to make good ethical decisions? I feel like, I mean, it's a yes or no, hmm, but yeah. it's a good, and it relates to a lot of stuff we even talked about this oh, yeah. week. Uh, with SpaceX and some of the other folks out there when you do, you know, so again, does it need to answer to investors of a publicly traded company? Does that make it easier or harder to make good ethical decisions? Yes or no? Uh, it's a good question. It's mm -hmm. a good question. I fear the result. <laughs> I feel we like this see. one might be a landslide. Uh, all right. Well, before we get out of here this week, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com. And make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Get the podcast delivered to your inbox first. And a reminder that we are shifting the date, the date of the live broadcast. We will be broadcasting live every Thursday on YouTube. So subscribe to at IEN Magazine on YouTube. And you'll catch us live. You'll catch the audio version on Friday and the video version on Monday. All right. For Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells... I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast.